As Matthew said, I'll be reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. <clears throat> Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word for us today. Good morning, church. Oh, before I start, I, um, this is my first time with you guys up here. Since my family has relocated from Louisville, Kentucky to Richmond, Virginia, and we could not have done it without Kingsway. I want to thank you for your kindness, for the ways that uh, every family, I'm going to try to keep it together, how you have been examples of kindness and of Christian generosity and of service and of, uh, I mean, it was just like, we, when we moved, we didn't know a soul, didn't know anybody. And the number of volunteers that selflessly came to our home, and, and it wasn't like they were just lifting, you know, oh, I got the pillows. It's like, no, let me, let me move the fridge for you. Let me, let me move the heaviest boxes. It was like a competition of who could serve more. And that was, I, as we went to bed our first night in Richmond, I was just like, this is a church that loves to serve. And so thank you for your example and it is a joy to be with you this morning, opening up God's Word. So, to start us off, this passage talks about putting to death what is earthly in you. And in a manner or a way to set the table for us this morning, I don't think there's a better image than butterflies. When we're talking about killing something, let's talk about butterflies. <laughs> think about this. Before, before you eat a meal... Everybody likes to set the table. Porter right now is obsessed with setting the table. He wants to help mommy put the forks and the, and the, the plates up there to make sure the drinks are there. That, that's a little dangerous for us. We've had to, to mop up a lot of water. But if you're going to eat a steak, if we're going to read God's word, we want to make sure that we have a context for cutting this up in bite-sized pieces. And when I was reading this passage, the, the picture or the illustration of a butterfly and caterpillars came to mind. Think about caterpillars and butterflies. Caterpillars, if you went to public school or maybe, well, I mean, whatever school you went to, third grade, everybody had a caterpillar that they put inside this tiny box and they called it a pet and it's like this little worm that it, we all anticipate the day that it eats all these leaves and, and, and whatever else caterpillars tend to eat. And then, and then they get into this cocoon and then they, they're in that cocoon for, for days or weeks. I didn't major in biology. And then they turn into a butterfly. At one stage in their life, they're crawling on branches. They're eating leaves. They have these incisors chomping away at their food. And then they go through a metamorphosis into a butterfly. Butterflies are beautiful. Butterflies are something that people like to watch. 
You, they are pollinators. They don't eat leaves. They eat nectar. They are great for your garden. There's a large variety within creation that are gorgeous. They, they warn predators, don't eat me, but they're beautiful. There's something magnificent. How ridiculous would it be to see a butterfly trying to act like a caterpillar? To see a butterfly crawling on the ground? It'd be dangerous. It'd be not life-giving because they no longer eat grass or twigs or vegetation. They have a long tongue that, that drinks nectar, so they're not even able to do it. And what Paul is talking about in this passage is a transformation, a transformation for us as believers, whoever would claim to be in Christ, that kind of like a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. We as Christians have been transformed. We have moved from a, we've moved from a past to a new reality. We can't go back in time. This isn't back to the future. This is, this is the, president, or the present. That We can't get into a cocoon and go back to a previous way of life. And we're also in a new space where caterpillars are kind of on the ground, butterflies are flying up, they're enjoying life. I think they have a substantially better life. They're not caught in cages. Well, hopefully they're not. And what Paul is saying is that, Christian, you live in a new, new time, You're no longer in the past, no longer earthly, you're heavenly, and you no longer live in earthly spaces. You live in a heavenly space, a space called union with Christ. So before we dig in, before we touch God's word, we need to pray. I need to pray. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, we come before your word expecting wonderful things, and we need you. Lord, I pray for all of us today that as we read these, these things that we are to put aside and put to death, that you would make Christ glorious to us. One of the functions of your law is to make us aware of our need of you. And Lord, I feel my need And I know there are those in this body that feel their need, that need to see the Savior for who he is. Lord, would you open eyes? Would you lift eyes to what Jesus has done on the cross? Lord, I pray for those that are struggling in this room, that do not know you, that this this would be an encouragement to your children. And Lord, that this would be a godly intervention for those who are not of you. Lord, you save sinners today. Spirit, we know that you are here. This is your word. Your word has been read. And we pray that it's preached effectively. It's your name we pray. Amen. So the context of these verses is what Josh preached last week, verses 1 through 4. When we look at verses one through four, there's three things, I think they're going to be up on the screen for you, three things that inform this passage of commands for us. The first is that we've died with Christ to this world. That's verse three. We see that. We see that we have been raised with Christ to a new world and that one day we'll be with Christ in glory. So we've died with Christ. We've died to sin since power is broken in, in the believer's life. The call of the law and of sin that would say that you and I deserve death, 
Well, that's been appeased in the person and work of Jesus. When Christ died and we believed in Jesus, we died with him. And so that call for death has been met. We've been raised with Christ to new life. Not an old life, but a new life. We spiritually have become renewed and relocated from the dominion of this world to being in Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. And the the sweet news of verse 4, that when Christ, our life appears, we'll be with him in glory. So we have future communion with Christ. We have future fellowship. We get future hangout with Jesus in glory. And so we have an eternal hope where we once had none. So that's the prerequisite. That's another table setting, if you will, for these commands. When we hear, put to death your sin, it's in the context of what God in his grace has done for us in Jesus Christ. So to summarize verses one through four, Christ has changed us and he's changed our direction. And if I could submit one thing that this passage is about, what we should take away as believers, and if you're sitting here observing the church, if you're, if you're not a Christian, but you're observing what we're talking about today, this is the point, that Christians killing their sin is a part of God's renewing work in Christ. Say that again. Christians killing their sin is a part of God's renewing work in Christ. And we're going to see that in two points, verses 5 through 9, put to death, and verses 10 and 11, be renewed. Put to death, be renewed. So let's look at point one, put to death. These two lists that we find here generally break up into two different categories. We have sexual sins, and then we have these interpersonal sins that are going on. But I I want you to go like, woof, man, I'm I'm not struggling with sexual sin, and I'm pretty good with anger, so this sermon, I'm just going to sit back and relax. Paul's not being exhaustive here, and anything that would be included in a past Christless life would be inferred by this passage. As Christians, anything that is not characteristic of Christ needs to be done away with. It needs to be put to death. Paul is describing a life that is marked by the old world that we once were a part of. And he's saying to those prior actions, the actions that we've died to, that, hey, if you still have lingering effects of that, if you are a butterfly and you find that you're crawling on the floor like a caterpillar, cut it out. Stop it. You're a butterfly. Live in that. Doug Moo and another New Testament scholar, if I could paraphrase them, they sum this passage wonderfully, and they say this. This is, this is the point of the passage. Become who you are and let the old man who has died be dead. That's the point. That's the point. And so as Christians, we're not content to share space with sin. But I'm also saying, I'm also saying before I start seeing hands raised or any of that, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're, you need to be perfect or that you're not going to struggle with sin. Christians struggle with sin. That's why we have Jesus. Jesus, when our sin qualifies us for salvation. Jesus didn't come to save perfect people. He came to save sinners. And every Christian 
Every Christian in this room knows that testimony. So I'm not saying, hey, stop sinning because Jesus really needs you to, to, to tighten up and be perfect and, and, and the cross was only good enough for a little bit and, and you really need to kick in and, and do some work. The question is, are you being faithful? Not perfect, but faithful. Are you being fruitful? Is your life marked by sin? Is that, if people knew you, and they asked you, what is this person like? Is he like Christ or is he like the world? How would they answer that question? Would they just say, well, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, like he, he, he goes to church. Would they say that you're in love with Christ? Or would they say, no, I, I would say this guy or this, this girl, whoever you're talking to, they love this world. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying this, that this passage paints two categories. Either you are not in Christ, and this is a wake-up call for you, that you are not in Christ, or you are, and you need to address your sin. And to every Christian in this room, we would all go, yep, (laughs) I've got sin I need to address today. You need to, Christian, you need to punch back and address the sin that has you against the wall. This isn't like a general, like, yeah, I know I'm not a good person and all this stuff. There are, we all, whatever's in your mind right now, that thing that is the forefront of your mind, that, that has you against the wall, against the ropes, are you just living with it? Have you just settled with it? Or are you, as this passage commands, killing it, putting it to death? So why? But like, why, why, why are we doing that? Well, Paul, in these verses, again, describes we have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We are going to be with Christ one day. The wrath of God is coming for these sins. And lastly, this was part of a life you used to live, a Christless life with no hope. But now you have hope. And we don't punch sin with moral mustering, and we don't punch sin by just ignoring that it's there. We punch it, we address it, we kill it, by lifting our eyes to the glorious realities of verses one through four, what has Jesus done for me? That is how we deal with it. We overcome our sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are renewed and God has decreed, as seen in this verse, in these verses, God's ordained means of renewing you, Christian, is by you killing your sin. It's not like God versus you. You, God has ordained through his spirit to use you and involve you in in your sanctification for his glory to transform your life into the image of Christ. So let's look at this first list. And I would would title this first list, Christ above sexual sins and covetousness. So what I want you to first note, let's, let's read verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Christian, I want you to note something. This might be incredibly obvious, but Christians 
have a sexual ethic. We have a moral code. There is a field that we play in. It's not ambiguous. It's not some ethereal out there. It's not like what you feel makes it real and that's your truth and this is my truth. Scripture is clear how we are to act regarding our sexual thoughts, affections, and activities. What we think about these things matter. And when I say sexual morality, I'm lumping them all together. We have sexual morality, action. We have passions, your affections. Do you want this? And then evil desires versus heavenly desires. So when I say that, I'm talking about all of it. How we think, what we want, and how we act So that's the first thing I want you to notice, but I also want you to lift your eyes and think about the world that we live in. Our world has a sexual code, a sexual ethic. They have rules. And the thing is, is that our world sees sex, specifically sexuality, as key to your identity, as being everything to who you are, that you are defined and powerful or in need of power depending on your sexuality, your sexual orientation. And yet, our culture would say that sex is nothing. The act of sex is nothing. That it is a social transaction, a meaningless exchange between two consenting individuals looking for a temporary high. But brothers and sisters, this is not the case with the church. Sex, as Matthew had pointed out earlier in our pastoral prayer, sex is the grandest picture that we have on earth of Christ and his church. Paul informs us in other places in the New Testament, Ephesians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that sex in its intended context of marriage first is a picture of Christ and the church, that husbands represent Christ's love and affection and sacrificial leadership for the church and that wives represent the church's love and affection for Christ and the joyful participation under that leadership. Sex in marriage represents fidelity. It represents forsaking all others. Isn't that the story of Israel and the Lord? Why have you forsaken me, Israel? Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Secondly, Paul teaches us that our bodies, specifically in 1 Corinthians 6, that our body is not our own, but they belong to Christ. Worship takes place when we have sex with our spouse in marriage. That's one of the intended purposes of sex. It's God glorifying. So when we break this command, when we sin, sexual immorality, passions, evil desires, what we're doing is we're distorting the picture of Christ in the church. We are misusing our bodies. When we act, just in general, not just here, anywhere, when we act anywhere, we are are a billboard to other people of what we think is important. And so when we act and misuse our body, we're no longer testifying to the glorious of God And to the example of Christ and the church, we're now showing other people, we're testifying to the goodness of sin. But I want to caution you because this is is definitely a category. This is definitely, just because you abstain from this doesn't save you from earthly thinking. That doesn't mean that you've put away earthliness. As Matthew uh, illustrated just a couple weeks ago, 
You know, are you trying to cage the monster? You can contain it, you know. You can, you can, you can put it in there and obey this command. You could muster something within you to, to abstain maybe for a period, maybe your whole life, and you're just patting yourself on the back going down the street. One of the most helpful things that I had a seminary professor tell me, he said, brothers, you can sin just as much in walking an old lady across the street as you can of robbing her of her purse. Let that sit for a second. You can sin just as much in walking an old lady across the street as in robbing her of her purse. We can sin in our pride. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. This is me. And a lot of times that's the sneaky bit of sin. That's what sin's like. You did it. You can check that. You're good. You must, you, you have to be glorifying God. You didn't do it. So you're good to go. That's just not the case. We're not called to just cage it. We're called to kill it. It's about killing it. But I also want to comfort those in here. Maybe you're sitting here and you feel uncomfortable because of the nature of what we're talking about because of something that has happened in your past regarding sexual sins. Maybe you're a Christian and you're feeling condemnation in this moment. I want you to look at verses one through four. I want you to remind yourself of what Jesus did for you. Don't let the devil have his moment in this space this morning. We're glorifying Jesus. We're here for Jesus. Jesus has saved you from that, and you should celebrate that God's grace has delivered you from that. So the next thing in this list is covetousness. You're probably thinking, what does that have to do with the rest of this list? Maybe it has to do with coveting another person's wife or spouse. Paul doesn't specify, and I think intentionally so, because he wants to leave it a little bit broader for us to talk about. Coveting is wanting, to, wanting something you do not have rather than that of someone else, that someone else has. Whether that be their stuff, their status, their circumstances. And it's our sinful desire and our reaction to that. Coveting isn't so much about a lack of those things, but it's about the heart. It's about a perceived lack of peace, security, prosperity, the good life. We're missing out. If only I had what, you know, Joe Schmo has, then I'd have peace. Then I'd have security. I'd be living the good life if I had this, fill in the blank. You know, maybe it's the status of your neighbors, you're coveting uh, kids and other families, level of comfort that you feel entitled to. Coveting can manifest itself in all sorts of ways for us all sorts of ways. One of the most uh, notable fruits of it is bitterness. We can become bitter because of something we don't have, and then that could lead to anger and slander and malice and our words, kind of like the second list in this passage. There's nothing wrong with working towards peace or working towards a promotion, don't hear me saying that, or wanting your kids to be more virtuous, or that you want your kids to launch into this world on the right foot. But the question must be asked, is that where I'm finding my 
joy. There's nothing wrong with wanting a new grill. Is that where you're finding joy that should be reserved only for the Lord? So what kind of life is characteristic of our union of Christ? Our peace and our security is found in the love and of our future hope when Christ, our life, appears. Coveting is idolatry, as Paul describes, because we have given our hope to creation rather than the Lord of creation. So don't be upset in looking at this first list, combining them all together. Don't be upset with your sin. Kill, this, kill your sin. Don't scold your sin. Get rid of it. Do away with it. This passage is describing an attitude towards your sin because of an attitude and affection for our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the second list, verses 8 and 9. I would say this is Christ above our interpersonal sins. Verses 8 now, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So anger. Anger. We got to define it first. Ed Welch says this. This really got me when I read it. I was like, this is way too close to home. The way that we define anger makes all the difference. For example, if we think that anger is our legitimate response to stupid people, then we are destined to become even angrier because there are so many people who make our life inconvenient, which is why we think they're stupid. Got me, Ed. Right there. He also says that anger specializes in indicting others, but is unskilled at both self-indictment and love. Go figure. Go figure. That's earthly thinking. Anger is earthly thinking. What does heavenly thinking look like? What does it mean now that Christ has transformed us? Well, for Christians, we were dead in our sin, and the nature of grace, grace is getting something we do not deserve. We, we are getting something we do not deserve. I'm not entitled to the cross. I'm not entitled to eternal salvation. I deserve God's judgment. I deserve, because of my sins, and because of Adam, and because of my own choices, I chose to worship other things than to worship the Creator. And so for Christians, we're well aware of our need. One of my favorite quotes, I think of all time, is from John Newton. And he says, There's no one's sins I'm more acquainted with than my own. I'm not saying, like, that's not saying that you're, you know, you're Hitler. What it is saying is that out of everybody I'm aware of, I'm more aware of why Jesus went on that cross. My sins put him there. And so there is a humility that marks the Christian body. And anger, we believe, we believe we're justified for how we act. But if we think for a second of who God is and who we are and what Jesus has done, humility starts to flood. Anger leads to other things such as slander and obscene words. You want to know what's in your heart, anger? Well, just look at how you're talking. Slander, I hope this is a helpful definition, it's intentionally tarnishing another's reputation for the sake of self-gain and divisiveness through sharing a lie or a truth that puts the individual in poor light. And I think that's in direct contradiction to what we see the New Testament talking about with encouragement, specifically verbal encouragement, which is that we intentionally build up one another through timely 
kind, and necessary words for the sake of love and unity by sharing an evidence of God's grace in that individual's life, heavenly and earthly. And then lastly, the obscene words. You know, this isn't just, it's the same thing with caging the monster, just because you did, like, I, I didn't, obscene words, it's not just like cuss words, check, I don't cuss, so my words, good, pass the test. That's not it. Again, it, it, the, the idea is more, you know, are your words going for the heart or for the jugular? Are you looking to serve other people or looking to serve yourself? Are you looking to build up or are you looking to tear down? Paul gives two different reasons why we should obey this command in addition to verses one through four. The first is that it's part of our past. I want you to notice verse seven should be up on the, on the screen. In these you too once walked, verse eight, but now, verse nine, seeing that you have put off. We used to be in a different place regarding our identity, our desires, our relationship to God. We were once, as we read in Romans 5, we were once in Adam under condemnation, but now we are in Christ. We have life. We have righteousness, an alien righteousness. That just means an other, that's someone else's righteousness that's covering me. Doug Moo says this, union with Christ, because it puts us in a new relationship to sin and brings us into the sphere of the Spirit's power will impact the way we live our lives. Brothers and sisters, we kill our sin because of the gloriousness of what Jesus has done, but because also we're living in a different time. We're not caterpillars, we're butterflies. It's ridiculous for us to try to go back, put to death things that are of that old life. The second reason is we see the wrath of God, verse 6 There's two futures. Notice verse four, when Christ our life appears, we'll be with him in glory. That's not everybody. And then we see wrath coming. Paul, what are you you talking about? What's going on here? So there's, there's, there's glory and there's wrath. What about the God of love? Is this two different gods? You know? No, this, this, is, this is speaking about the, the, the prophets in the Old Testament talked about the day of the Lord. This is that day. That day is marked by the vindication of the righteous, salvation of the righteous, of God's people, and of a judgment and condemnation for the wicked. That's what this is talking about. And that's the future that every one of us in this room, one of them will be ours. That will be, we will have a future. Which future will you have? You know, the difference between these two futures, it's Jesus. Why justice? Why wrath? Why salvation? Jesus Christ. God is good and wise and loving in all that he does. He's not more one than the other. He's not like in the Old Testament, he is a judge. And in the New Testament, he's a father in a sense. He's not in process learning new things. No, he's always invincibly been perfect. He's always been the same. And the difference for us, the difference for everybody, the good news, the age of salvation is when Jesus came. And so maybe you're sitting here, everybody is, I need to say this, everybody is under condemnation. That was my past and Jesus changed my life. And maybe you're sitting here and you're hearing this and you're hearing condemnation and and, and the first thought that comes in your mind, that's me. 
I think I'm in Adam. I'm not in Christ. My favorite, the, the, the scripture we read earlier in Romans 5, the subheading for that, death in Adam, life in Christ. That's the good news for anybody here that does not know the Lord, that it is a free gift. You don't have to, to do something. Jesus did it all, and it could be yours. And don't wait. Don't suppress that thought. Out of all the things to kill, don't kill that thought. I want you to think about it, look directly at it, and approach me or one of the pastors at the end of our time. Because Jesus, that there's two futures. It's not, it's, not, it's not debatable. It's not debatable. Point two of this passage is being renewed. Being renewed. Put off and put on. This isn't talking about moral reform here. If you want, this is, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want moral reform, join the Boy Scouts. The church, what we're doing here today is to celebrate God's gracious work in our lives through his spirit because of what Jesus has done for us. Doug Moose says this about Colossians, and I just, I love this. I love this. Talking about why, why, why are we killing sin and, and what is the end of killing sin? Christology is the theological heart. Jesus Christ, Christ-centeredness, is the theological heart of Colossians. And like the spokes of a wheel, all the other themes of the letter radiate from it. Christ is central to this command. We put away and we become who we are. We put away, we kill sin, and we pursue Christ. Some of you guys are like, you know, I'm, I'm, sick, of, I'm sick of this butterfly talk. I need something like we're killing sin. So here, here you go, kill and pursue. Kill your sin, pursue Christ. And Paul describes that this renewal is through the renewal into the image of its creator. You know, it's a process that is renewal. We're going to be renewed completely in heaven one day. But until that day, it is a process. We're in a already, we're already enjoying, but not yet there in eternity. It's a process that starts and it continues by grace. John Calvin says this, he says, for unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety towards God. It is a process that starts and continues with grace. We will not grow as Christians until we are, students, as we learned, dazzled by who God is, and we see the sinfulness of who we are and the gloriousness of how Christ has met all of our needs in the cross. And that's the Christian life. That, that this, this process, if I can just really simplify it, it is those three things growing in magnitude. Every day, oh my goodness, Lord, you are great. You are worthy. You are weighty. 
And man, I'm a sinner. And we start realizing, no, I'm really a sinner. (laughs) Whoa, I am really messed up. And Lord, oh, you are so glorious. And we start to see Jesus in a new light. Yeah, Jesus, you saved me from my sin. And then as you keep on living and living, you start realizing, no, my sin put you on that cross. No, Lord, why did you save me? Why would you send yourself to save me? And over time, it grows in depth. And that same old story is refreshed and renewed for us. And it rejuvenates us. And it animates us. And we testify to that to a dying world. That is the Christian life. You know, when I was younger, I used to just be so confused. It's like, like when you talk to, to, to parents in the youth group or whatever, it's like they just, they just say that, yeah, God's great and they're sinners and Jesus died for them. Like, does that ever get boring? No, it doesn't. Because you're growing in that. It means so much more. Paul continues on that this renewal isn't just some, again, what, what does renewal mean? He gives us, he defines it. He fields it for us. It's a renewal into the image of God, image of its creator, which is Christ. Image is a word that we see in the Bible. We see it first in Genesis. We think about Adam, that he was made in the image and likeness of God. But that also reminds us, Genesis 1 and 2 remind us of the fall in Genesis 3. Adam was made in the likeness of God and he failed. He sinned. But we also see image in Colossians. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in this image, in this new Adam, this second Adam, in Jesus Christ, that is who we're being renewed into. Whereas our sin in the first Adam decays us, this renewal in Jesus renews us. We're transformed. And it's verse 11. Let's look at this. Close up our time. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but all, but Christ is all and in all. What is the distinctive nature of this renewal? Like, what does this image look like? Are you going to is it, is it Greek and Jew, and as this list goes on? It's not a renewal of lesser distinctions, but of the greatest distinction, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, that is the point. Verse 11 shows us that this is a renewal not of lesser distinctions, but of the greatest distinctions, Christ. And I want you to think about today. Individuals are taught today in almost every conceivable place that you need to tally your distinctions as a person to know who you are and who others are in relationship to you, where you land on the totem pole of power in our society. Look at your skin color. Look at your lack of opportunity. Look how much money you make. What's your gender? What's your sexual orientation? How many degrees do you have? Where does your child go to school? What traumatic experiences have you gone through? Tally these up and more and measure your worth. Who are you? Earthly thinking would have you see structures of race and gender and sexual orientation, how much money is or is not in your bank as billboards for your worth 
for how much power and worth you have with your neighbor. So many churches can be this way too, that we can, as a church and other churches, would see and look at their various distinctions. Look at our size. We're big. Well, we're small. Look at our location. We're in a tough place. Look at our socioeconomic diversity. Look at our just general diversity. Look at the 50 countries represented here. Look at the political parties that we're partnered with. Look at the number of Bible studies that we have. Look at all the information we know about the Bible. Look at all these different programs that we have. Look at how inclusive we are. Look at our defining virtues and distinctives. Of course, some of these things are good and be celebrated. But brothers and sisters, I wake up the joy and king's way of my family because our greatest distinctive here is Jesus Christ. Look at all of these things. How about this? How about look at Christ? Look at how much we treasure what he's done in our life. Look at the sin he saved me from. And look at the glorious future that I have. Verse 11 describes that Christ is all. That speaks to Jesus' supremacy. He is all. He is everything to us. Nothing, there is nothing else that goes above him. He is all. He is supreme. And he is in all. He is the reason for our unity and new life. When I abstain from sexual immorality, passions, and evil desires, when I'm not angry and when I'm not struggling with malice and slander and obscene words, it's because I'm treasuring Jesus Christ. I'm not mustering something. I'm not, I'm not trying to win kindness from God by doing something. I'm looking at the cross of Christ. And that is our hope today as we leave this building, that we would treasure Christ, that he would be all and in all, in everything that we do, because he has done everything for us at Calvary. The proper application of this passage, I think, is self-evaluation. I want you to look at yourself. Are you, if you want to use the illustration, are you a caterpillar? Are you living like a caterpillar? Are you living like a butterfly? Are you dead in sin? Are you killing sin? Are you under condemnation? Are you in Christ? I want you to look at that. Look directly in the eyes of that and ask yourself that today because God has ordained that this passage be here this Sunday to us at Kingsway Community Church. There is a reason, I believe a providential reason, why we are studying this. Do not let Scripture pass you by. May Christ be all and in all. Let's pray. Christ Jesus, you are glorious and worthy to be praised. And Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your spirit that lives in us. I want to thank you for what you have done in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those in here today that you would stir our hearts, that you would stir our hearts for where there is territory that does not belong to you, that you would rid us of our sin, that we would look at sin and rid it because you are more glorious, you are worthy, just like, just like the treasure in the field, Lord. We are willing to give everything for you. I'm willing to give everything of my past life for you. May that be our testimony, Lord. Lord, convict us.
stir us to confession, and give us and remind us of the great reason to celebrate, which is that you, you have saved us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.